afternoon. I wonder, could you uh, tell us something about the, this government's policy toward uh, reports we hear from Europe and from here about removal of American forces from Europe or reduction in the, the size or the strength of American personnel in Europe? Yes, I think that uh, Secretary Rusk explained uh, quite clearly the American policy uh, last weekend as he reaffirmed it. Thursday, October 31st, 1963. We're at a press conference being given by President John F. Kennedy. It's his first one since October 9th. 304 reporters are in attendance. Potential topics include civil rights, withdrawing troops from Europe, Cuba, nuclear arms, and Vietnam. Consisting of three artillery battalions, two armored battalions, and one armored cavalry regiment. This augmentation of U.S. forces in Germany was made to help meet the deficiency of other NATO members in fulfilling their commitments at a very crucial time when the buildup of West Germany's own forces was incomplete. Although some of these deficiencies have been corrected and the German force buildup is progressing, we are prepared to keep these additional combat units in Germany as long as there is a need for them. Thus, we are not planning any reduction in United States combat units in Germany. As part of the reorganization of the Army's European logistic forces, we are planning some reduction in non-combat personnel, a matter on which, of course, we are in touch with our allies. But we do not intend to bring back any units or personnel whose return would impair the military effectiveness of our forces in Germany. In short, we intend to keep our combat forces in Germany as they are today. Well, and Mr. that Pre is more than six combat divisions. Uh, Mr. President, uh, that being so, how many human beings are we going to bring back from our European station now? Well, any we bring back, we may include some... Uh, it had been one hell of a week. On October 26th, the new Polaris A3 nuclear missile was fired from the USS Andrew Jackson. The submarine was 50 feet below the Atlantic, off the coast of Cape Canaveral, Florida. The unarmed warhead had a maximum range of nearly 2,900 miles. This meant that for the first time, a nuclear weapon was capable of reaching any target on Earth. Six divisions, which are our NATO commitment, are being kept. In addition, these other combat units are being kept in Germany also. That same day, investigative journalist Clark Mullenhoff published a report in the Des Moines Register about part-time model Ellen Romich, who'd recently been deported to West Germany. Romich was to testify before a U.S. Senate subcommittee under suspicion that she'd been working for Eastern Communists, gathering intel on high-ranking executives. The FBI was looking into how well acquainted she was with President Kennedy. Meanwhile, Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev announced that the USSR had no intention of competing with the U.S. in their desire to send a manned spaceship to the moon by 1970. You spoke of some deficiencies. Uh, who's falling short? Uh, what's we're talking about the deficiencies in 1961 when we were uh, having a uh, serious crisis in Berlin and where the uh, forces, uh, the NATO forces, were inadequate. And as you know, I think the Secretary of State uh, made a reference to the fact that a number of our allies had not, and in some cases have not, met their uh, NATO commitments today for the number of forces that should be stationed in Germany, for the defense right, of Germany. We still have to keep these troops there, though, apparently, because the... There has been a build-up. There has been 
a buildup. On Sunday, October 27th, U.S. Ambassador to South Vietnam, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., got a telegram from Secretary of State George W. Ball stating that the U.S. wouldn't oppose an overthrow of President Ngo Jinh Jam, who'd been an ally. The South Vietnamese president would be assassinated on November 2nd. The next day, the demolition of New York's Penn Station began at 9 a.m. It would take nearly three years to complete. Is purchasing military equipment in the United States, which provides an offset to our gold losses for our forces in the Federal Republic. So they're making an effort, and so are we, and we're going to continue to do it. Mr. President, Senator Goldwater accused your administration today of the falsification of the news in order to perpetuate itself in office. Would you care to comment on that? What, what was he referring to? He's making a speech here at the Women's National Press Club, and his point was that uh, you and your administration are mismanaging the news and using it to perpetuate yourself in office. Well, uh, as I've said before, I think it would be uh, unwise at this time to answer or reply to Senator Goldwater. I'm confident that he'll be making many charges, uh, even more serious uh, than this one, uh, in the uh, coming months. And in addition, he himself has had a busy week uh, selling TVA and to uh, and uh, giving uh, permission to uh, suggesting that military commanders overseas be permitted to use nuclear weapons. On this day, Halloween, President Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act, creating federally funded centers to treat mental illness on an outpatient basis. Fair for me this week to reply to him. He replaced state living facilities and had financial backing until 1970. Unfortunately, it led to the closure of many state mental hospitals with no plan for discharged patients. Well, as you know, uh, when Secretary McNamara and General Taylor came back, they announced that we would expect to withdraw a thousand men from uh, South Vietnam before the end of the year. That evening, an explosion at the Indiana State Fair Coliseum killed 74 people when a leaky gas tank fell over near an electric heater, causing two explosions during a production of Holiday on Ice. What might be called uh, frontline operations. 400 more people suffered non fatal injuries, and no one was ever tried for negligence. Intensifies and is carried on in South Vietnam. Halloween 1963 marked the end of the last month John Fitzgerald Kennedy spent on Earth. His assassination on November 22nd was then, as now, considered the end of an era in American history. Tonight, to help make sense of what was happening in November of 1963, returning to a man who, at the time, was hosting an 11.15 p.m. 45-minute radio program over WOR in New York. He was a published author and noted rabble-rouser, a self-proclaimed sidewalk crack-watcher, and a generational influencer, as well as a purveyor of homespun Americana just slightly off-kilter. He was a man who'd marched on Washington with Martin Luther King just months prior. The man's name was Gene Shepard, though perhaps you'd think of him as Shep. And he was a big supporter of our 35th president. How easily and how quickly people change their story or forget what they said or forget what they felt or forget even what they knew over a comparatively short time. And I can remember the first time that I heard of Kennedy. This was back in the days when uh, Ike was president, and Kennedy began to be heard just a little bit about. And I remember sitting one night in a guy's apartment, 
and we were talking about politics and the whole phenomenon of American politics. And he was the hot under the collar type, the idealist, the burning idealist, the angry man who uh, subscribes to all the magazines, the right ones, who uh, subscribes to all the right causes, and this is even more important, who is always generally considered in our time and in our world a sensitive, truthful man. Well, we're sitting there, and he was really bugged, and and, uh, (laughs) he was saying, among other things, that he felt that one of the problems with American politics, and in politics in general, was that it's usually run by old men. It's it's usually in in the hands of men who don't have energy. Idealism has long since disappeared from their lives. Dreams have disappeared. And there they are. They're, they're, they're old men, and they don't really know what's going on in the world of the now. This was his whole thesis, which is a reasonable one, although not necessarily a true one. And then in the course of the conversation, he says, you know, he said, have you ever heard of Jack Kennedy? You know, I'd heard of Senator Kennedy, that's all, just very vague name. You know, like many senators, you hear the senator from Illinois or the senator from Utah or something, a name. And he says, now this, this is an example of a guy who obviously will never, never possibly be elected president of the United States. Why? He's young. He's too young. He's got ideas. He's got idealism. He's dedicated in one thing and another. Well, I don't have to tell you that shortly after Mr. Kennedy was elected, This was one of the first guys I heard yelling about the fact that Kennedy was too young. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 145. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, it's the fall of 1963, and network radio drama is dead while American life is changing. If you're listening to this in real time, This month marks the 60th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination. To go beyond its public horror and understand American society three generations ago, we'll focus on Gene Shepard. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening music comes from a concert given by the John Coltrane Quartet, in Stockholm, Sweden, on November 19, 1962. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast in at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. It would be a mistake for others to look upon Berlin because of its location as a tempting target. The United States is there. The United Kingdom and France are there. The Pledge of NATO is there. And the people of Berlin are there. It is as secure in that sense as the rest of us. For we cannot separate its safety from our own. A solemn bar 
we each of us gave to West Berlin in time of peace will not be broken in time of danger. If we do not meet our commitments to Berlin, where will we later stand? If we are not true to our word there, all that we have achieved in collective security which relies on these words will mean nothing. And if there is one path above all others to war, it is the path of weakness and disunity. To sum it all up, we seek peace, but we shall not surrender. That is the central meaning of this crisis and the meaning of this government's policy. With your help and the help of other free men, this crisis can be surmounted. Freedom can prevail, and peace can endure. Of course, uh, I assume that, uh, <laughs> that the people who really do have a 19th century attitude towards the world really honestly believe that it is possible that history can not only be stopped, but like 55, 60, 70 years can just be erased. I think one of the things that sets man apart, although, again, we don't really know whether they do or not, that is, the other creature, so it's hard to know, but no other creature has ever been able to build what we call uh, dream castles. The giant delusion. Now, I'm not just talking about one guy sitting around figuring that tomorrow morning he's going to become vice president of IBM. That's bad enough right there, you know, that dream castle. What would even be worse is if he made it. But I'm talking about the national dream castle. Now, hardly anyone ever talks about the national illusions that somehow take hold of a country. They just do. They just take the country and gallop off into the distance, into the dust with it. We like to believe, however, that no such thing exists, because this is a pretty disquieting thing, you know, to realize that, that a country, like a person... Speaking of delusions, this is W-O-R-A-M of FM, New Yorkie here. <laughs> you know, we like to think that countries... I guess this is the most conventional way of thinking about a country. When you think of a country, how do you think of it? Do you think of it as a lot of people being led by a leader or a government? Or do you think of it as just a sort of a great blob out there in which the leaders and the government are merely an extension of the people? In short, they're not separate at all. Of course, one of the great cop-outs of our time or of any other time is that everything that happens in the world is because of the rotten leaders. Every place you go, and from all time immemorial, this is what poor slobs have said. Well, they're good people, actually. They're basically good people. It's the rotten leaders. They've led them down the trail, the pathway to hell. My God, they're good people. Well, <laughs> this has been said countless times. Dick, how many times have you heard it? There's much evidence to prove that the leaders are no different from the people that the reason that they are the leaders is because the people said, get up there and yell it for us. Gene Shepard was born on July 26, 1921, on the south side of Chicago to Gene and Anna Shepard. He grew up in Hammond, Indiana, which, according to him, was a tough and mean industrial city. 
As a matter of fact, I suspect that, you know, I can remember my mother. Now, I hate to bring mother into this thing, and for one brief moment here, since this is America, let's face it, there is no more loaded, freighted word than mother. And I will give you one brief 10-second period there where you can bow your head and can, uh, for just one moment there, concern yourself with private hate. Uh, just think of mother there for a while. Your mother. Even the mothers think of mother. Let it boil up and hiss. Of course, this is a, you can always get a crowd of Americans nervous by just standing up in front of them and saying, think of mother. As an adolescent, Shepard worked as a mailboy in a steel mill. He began his radio career at the age of 16, doing weekly sportscasts for WJOB in Hammond. That job led to juvenile roles on network radio in Chicago, including that of Billy Fairchild in the serial Jack Armstrong All-American Boy. From out of the West comes Red Rider, America's famous fighting cowboy. One of the programs that later came to symbolize Shepard's childhood, thanks to his 1983 film A Christmas Story, was Red Rider. Rob that pony, little beaver. There's trouble tonight on the Shokano Trail. You betcha, Red Rider. Get along. Get him up. Get... During World War II, Shepard served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, installing radar equipment and furthering a lifelong dislike for authority figures. After the war, he studied acting in Chicago at the Goodman Theater and briefly engineering and psychology at Indiana University. He left Indiana without a degree to take a radio gig in Cincinnati, which led him to a series of radio jobs, each better than the previous. After working at WTOD in Toledo, Ohio, Shepard spent the early 1950s at WSAI and WLW in Cincinnati, and he had a late-night broadcast on KYW in Philadelphia. He moved to New York for WOR and debuted on February 26, 1955. WOR is a 50,000-watt clear-channel AM station and was the flagship affiliate of the Mutual Broadcasting System. Mutual Broadcasting System is now coast to coast. Good evening, everyone. This is Gabriel Heater, privileged in a history-making moment to welcome the Mutual Network coast to coast. Stations of Don Lee Network, Central States Broadcasting System, the Iowa Network, KFEL Denver, WHB Kansas City and many new affiliates. Mutual Broadcasting had formed on September 28, 1934, as a cooperative of stations, WOR New York, WGN Chicago, WXYZ Detroit, and WLW Cincinnati. The members shared telephone line transmission facilities and agreed to collectively enter into contracts with advertisers for their network shows. After a deal with Don Lee's chain of West Coast networks, Mutual went coast to coast on December 29, 1936. The other major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, were corporations. When World War II ended, domestic manufacturing restrictions were lifted. TV became a focal point as the other networks pumped their radio profits into the new medium. Mutual's cooperative status meant it never had the resources to move into TV, although affiliates like WOR did run a local TV station in New York. Mutual remained a cooperative until 1952, when General Tire became the parent company. When I use the term old, I am merely saying 
when you slowly traverse along that vast horizontal line, that curved plane horizontal line of time, that great time-space curve, that jot, more and more that hazy shifting foliage in the background that you are leaving, that jungle that you have traversed, uh, becomes more and more of a fairyland and less and less real. Just like I remember, again, you know, I'm sitting in my swivel chair the other day, and the phone rings and people talk, and I hear the sound of a mimeograph machine, and I'm writing a piece for a magazine or something, and I'm all involved. And suddenly, like a bell, in my ear, I heard the faint echoes of something which I think I'm the only one. I, 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 was there ever any radio program that you ever heard of called Tales of the Alhambra? Did you ever hear of anything like this? Tales of the Alhambra? It was a very mysterious... Enigmatic East program, that kind of thing, you know, with big gong, and the announcer would come from the mysterious East. Many, many centuries ago, it was writ in the fingers of time as they moved across the great sands of eternity, the tales of the Alhambra, this sort of thing. And and I, I just suddenly occurred to me, and it disappeared then, and the sound of the mimeograph machines took over again. And so... <laughs> No, 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 Shepard, stop it. No, there was never any such thing. Get out of there. Cut it out. And I walked away, and it was much better. Ten minutes later, I went back to the water cooler and talked to a salesman, and I was back in reality. By 1955, radio was changing. Drama, which had dominated the dial for more than two decades, was on its way out due to both its and TV production costs. More and more network programming was being turned over to local affiliates. These local affiliates employed a new generation of hosts that had grown up with Jack Benny, Fred Allen, and other observant humorists. Shepard's peers were Johnny Carson, Jack Parr, Rod Serling, and Steve Allen. When Jack Benny passed away on December 26, 1974, Shep had this to say on his next day's broadcast. Well, you know, I'll tell you about Jack Benny. Uh, you mind if I talk a little about Benny here as a fellow uh, performer? You hear a lot of talk about Benny today. Everybody's been discussing him. But, you know, I haven't heard anybody discuss his technique at all. Maybe it's because his technique was so integrated into his personality that most people didn't think he had a technique. He was just Benny. But all performers, particularly people who make other people laugh, hopefully that's my function in life from time to time. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, you hate to say that, you know. You, that's an embarrassing thing. That's like Arthur Miller saying, well, now, of course, realize that my function in life is to make people weep. That's equally silly. But nevertheless, as a working uh, humorous comic, I've always appreciated technique. And I find the technique is very, very lacking in many people who perform today. As a matter of fact, it's a very interesting problem. You know, you hear all kinds of talk about where are the great, quote, comics coming from. There's always a lack of them. Everybody bewails it. Well, one of the reasons why, I suspect, is because most comics today don't have much in the way of actual technique. They have material. Material is not the same as technique. <laughs> it's, like, it's like having the script of Hamlet, but you don't know how to play it. So it doesn't do you much good to get up there and uh, read Hamlet and they expect you to get the same kind of reaction that, say, uh, Gielgud or an Olivier will get when they do Hamlet. But Benny was, in fact, quite the opposite. He was practically all technique. 
and his material was really fairly spare. He did not use a great deal of material, but his material was himself, really. In a sense, he was like W.C. Fields in that sense. Fields had integrated a personality with a technique of performing that came out of a specific kind of era. Now, for those of you who don't know much about Jack Benny, except that, of course, he died at a very advanced age. I believe he was 39 when he left. But uh, Benny, Benny, uh, <laughs> Benny has to be appreciated in terms of what he could do and why he could do it. Then he combined, of course, talent. He, he was a talented man. But more than that, he also had great technique, and he had guts. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? Well, the one thing that most comics today, let's say of the Don Rickles school, and I'm not putting Rickles down, but this is a different school. Let's say the, the George Carlin school or the Morty Gunty school. This school... The one thing that they're afraid of, most of all, is a moment of silence. That would kill them. <laughs> so they just constantly, it's like a machine gun. This is called the scattergun technique. In fact, in one minute, they'll tell 30 one-liners. That's a fact. That's why they all talk about the other day. You know, it's all a machine gun technique so that if nine jokes fail out of ten, they still got three laughs in a minute. So <laughs> that's a whole different ball game. Benny, on the other hand, he was not at all uh, hesitant about getting out on the stage or even on the radio, which it takes even more guts to do, because on the radio, the one thing that is truly uh, noticeable on the air is silence. Silence makes everybody turn up and look at the set. But a steady uproar of noise, no way. So silence was what really Benny worked in. Most of Benny's laughs came not from anything he said, but from the incredibly pregnant pauses that would suddenly occur. Now, this is a dangerous weapon because a lot of producers won't let that go on because they, uh, they, they, they believe that speed is the essence, speed and loudness. As a matter of fact, there's an old axiom in comedy. When in doubt, make it louder. When that doesn't make it, make it, when you're in trouble, in spite of it being louder, make it louder and faster. So ultimately, you'll find a lot of techniques have gone by the board and uh, in favor of just loud and fast. Just constantly keep yelling and hollering and hitting stuff, and it'll seem to be good. Well, in the case of Benny, he was quite the opposite. Benny used the long, pregnant pause, and he was a consummate radio performer, to begin with, because he knew how to use the the medium very well, probably the greatest radio comic that ever lived, no question about it. He, he knew how to use the medium. He, he had very subtle modulations of his voice. He knew how to just turn a phrase just with a slight, slight, almost uh, twitch of the, of the eyebrow as a phrase is going by you. And he could get laughs on absolutely zero material, which always baffled many other comics. Because Benny, Benny, his was the humor of attitude, which is not the same as the humor of situation. He represented an attitude when he came on. Shepard was working an overnight slot for WOR in 1956. Facing a lack of sponsorship, he was about to be fired when he did an unauthorized commercial for Sweetheart Soap 
who didn't sponsor his program. WOR immediately fired him. But listeners complained in droves, and Sweetheart actually offered to sponsor him. WOR immediately brought him back. The overnight slot allowed him to riff with little need for the kind of corporate oversight that faced daytime and primetime hosts. That year, during a discussion on how easy it was to manipulate the bestseller lists, Shepard suggested that his listeners visit bookstores and ask for a copy of a fictional novel called I, Libertine by Frederick R. Ewing. Fans of the show planted references so widely that there were claims it made the New York Times bestseller list. It led to an actual book deal with Ballantyne. Theodore Sturgeon wrote most of it with Shepard's outline guiding him. Betty Ballantyne finished the novel when Sturgeon fell asleep during a marathon writing session to meet the deadline. Famed illustrator Frank Kelly Freeze did the cover art. The book was published on September 13, 1956. All proceeds went to charity. <laughs>